I chose a stack of books from the early 70s and they go back to a point in my life when I was I was always very literate. I was always I lived in a house with uh, a mother who was a teacher and a principal, school principal, a father who worked for the National Security Agency as a cryptologist and could type 100 words a minute. And so that environment, being in a house with lots of books and a set of encyclopedias and often being a mischievous child, being on punishment, I would spend a lot of time in the books. And so books meant a lot to me. And this particular year, I walked into the local library and it was Black History Month. I knew nothing about Black History Month. I just walked in and it was a February day and I ran smack into this display of all of these books. And that's what the, uh, some of those books are in that stack that I took a picture of. And literally for me, it represented an opening to another world, an entirely different world that I was obviously a part of being African, quote unquote, African-American, but it was a side of my history that I knew nothing about, was never taught, even though I went to some of the supposedly best of schools. And it put me on a path that immediately led to me being very angry. It's <laughs> something that was pointed out that at the top of the stack is the book Black Rage. And indeed, that is, I think, what the sum total of what the initial experience led to, the, my devouring the information in some of those books led to me being quite an angry young young adolescent. And it put me on a path to a quest for identity, which for me is, is wrapped up in my spiritual quest and, and, and purpose and identity. Welcome to Our Seven Neighbors, Season 2, Stories from the Black Spiritual Diaspora. In partnership with the Muslim Wellness Foundation and Bayonne Islamic Graduate School, the Interreligious Institute at Chicago Theological Seminary presents a new season of our podcast, Our Seven Neighbors. This season is hosted by Dr. Camila Mukman Rashad, and we are so glad you are here. Now, you just heard a story from this week's guest, Sar Amadil Ben Yehuda. We asked all of our guests to share a photo or object from their youth that was transformative in their identity. Saramadil shared a photo of a stack of books, and that photo is available at OurSevenNeighbors.com if you want to see it. My name is Kim Schultz, and I'm the coordinator of creative initiatives at the Interreligious Institute and producer of this podcast. So, if you're ready, let's listen to the very powerful conversation between Dr. Rashad and Saramadil. Welcome to season two of Our Seven Neighbors. I am your host, Dr. Camila Mukman Rashad, and I'm a visiting assistant professor of psychology and Muslim studies at Chicago Theological Seminary. I'm also the founding president of Muslim Wellness Foundation. Joining me today, I'm so thrilled, is Sar Akhmadiel bin Yehuda, live from Demona, Israel. He is the Minister of Information and National Spokesman for the African Hebrew Israelites of Jerusalem. And we have just heard his story, and you'll be seeing the picture soon, of a stack of books which intrigued young Akhmadiel for Black History Month. Thank you so much for that really beautiful description of this stack of books that you stumbled on, Black History Month in 1970. 
And so now I want to pose a question to you. Dr. Dan P. McAdams is a narrative psychologist who wrote, if you want to know me, then you must know my story, for my story defines who I am. And if I want to know myself to gain insight into the meaning of my own life, then I too must come to know my story. It is a story that I continue to revise and to tell myself as I go on living. So just for a moment, I would like for you to think of your life as a story or a novel. And first, let's imagine for a second that this novel of your life has a title. So what would that title be? (laughs) Oh, wow. You kind of caught me off guard with that one. The Encyclopedic Journey of Sara Madi L. How about that? (laughs) I love it. Okay. The Encyclopedic Journey of Sara Madi L. Yeah. So... Sard, tell me, what would be the prologue, some of the prologue moments to this encyclopedic journey? First, allow me to give all praises to the Holy One of Israel, Yah Yahuwah. I greet you, Shalom Aleichem, you and the, the uh, listening audience. Appreciate you having me on the, on the program. A start for me, and, and encyclopedic comes to mind because I was raised in a very literate household where my, my mom was a school principal and teacher. And my father was, uh, he worked for National Security Agency, and he actually could type 100 words a minute. And it floored me when I saw him doing this on a manual typewriter one day. And I think it gave me another respect for a male typing. You know, that wasn't something that, that wasn't an image that I think it surprised me to see a man, my father, typing and that fast. And so I was raised in that kind of environment. being. The, the mischievous boy that I was, that most of us are growing up, I spent a lot of time on punishment and I would have to stay in the house a lot. And it developed in me a habit of pulling down books off the shelves that were in the basement. There was a set of encyclopedias and I, I pretty much read an encyc- you know, the encyclopedia just to broaden my horizons. And so it was uh, that kind of backdrop to my upbringing. As far as spirituality and religion went, my father gave me a choice in those teen years that I could I could either go with my, my mother downtown and she was a Methodist and that would be the car ride. That would be most of the morning and half of the afternoon. Or I could go to the Catholic services, which were really just a couple blocks away from home. And they were less than an hour. So you needn't deliberate long on which a teenage boy, which his choice was. That was something that my father kept me on in terms of a spiritual path. And if I was to go back a little bit, it was in 63 during the the March on Washington. I know that I don't recall much of it, if any, really, but I, I was told that I was on his shoulders much of the day. And we, you know, he took me with him in 68. Of course, in 63, that was when Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech. And in 68, upon his assassination, my father took me within blocks, within half a block, actually, of one of the major corridors in Washington, D.C., where the corridor was up in flames. And so I had a chance firsthand to be able to see this, this, this effect. And I knew nothing about the cause of the effect, so to speak, other than that uh, Martin Luther King had been assassinated. And so walking into that library that day in in the 70, early 70, 70, 71, it opened up a new world for me because I the books that I was exposed to gave me 
that context. And I left, upon returning those books to the library, I was a very much uh, changed and, and different individual. I was, as you mentioned about the, the book on the top, Black Rage, that's what I was filled with. I was an angry young adolescent. And that pretty much framed my thinking for the next probably decade. That's the prologue to the stack, <laughs> the stack of books. <laughs> And there's so many interesting titles that you have here. Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, The Souls of Black Folk, Before the Mayflower, The Autobiography of Malcolm X, From Slavery to Freedom by John Hope Franklin. And you describe seeing these books and being filled with this wide-eyed wonder, right? And it had helped kind of launch you onto this quest for identity, you said, wrapped in your in a spiritual quest. And it was a turning point. Yet, the reaction of your father to seeing some of these titles that you were reading was not of wide-eyed wonder. Can you describe how he reacted to you now discovering so much about the history that prior to that you had no knowledge of? Yeah, I had set the books on the piano in the hall at the bottom of the stairs. And obviously that lets many of your listeners know that I had a fairly upward middle-class upbringing in Washington, D.C., and my father came in that afternoon, probably earlier than I expected, but it wasn't that I was trying to hide what I was reading. I mean, I had the books and I stayed in the room and read them and what have you, but I had set them on the piano and he came, I could hear him down downstairs. I was upstairs. I heard him say, who's got these books? And he knew it wasn't my younger brother and sister. It obviously was, you know, and, and it was, take those back. And I was finished. I was going to take them back anyway. And it was it was it was many years later, you know, when I think I shared with him that I had actually already read them, not just perused, but had devoured them. So that was his response. I think the equivalent, in fact, in the current age of the anti-CRT, critical race theory sentiments and the post 9-11 matters, I think that that would have been the equivalent of my being, quote unquote, radicalized. And indeed, that's 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 what it was. It did leave me with that kind of sentiment. Had I been just a little older, I've always said that I felt I would have been a Black Panther. I would have joined the Black Panthers. But by that time, naturally, the Panthers had been literally shot to pieces and decimated as an organization in America. And so that set me on a path that took a different course, one that I feel was being carefully orchestrated, and that was the path of political empowerment and economic empowerment and the such. You know. Now, you also describe that this knowledge that you were able to kind of stumble upon had such an impact on how you saw yourself as a young Black man in 1970 but that it also opened up sort of questions that you had in terms of your relationship with the eternal. Um, so can you describe how your discovery of yourself on, on both a racial level, religiously, spiritually, how did that open up for you? Well, it was a lot of, there were a lot of intersections and cross-cutting currents. I attended a, well, one of the things family-wise, that anger ended up being directed negatively towards my grandmother. And it was because she was white, no fault of, of any of ours, right? And again, for a, uh, however I was, early teens, that was 
totally irrational for someone, you know, uh, a mature person. But then I had to process all that. But I was I, I took it out and I didn't want to be seen with he would visit regularly and we would hop on the bus and go downtown with my younger brother and sister prior to that. But after that, I didn't want to be seen with her. I didn't want to be associated with her. And so that that caused problems not only with that relationship, but in my own psyche. And so that was one, I think, stream that was playing out. Then the fact that I attended a Catholic high school, Catholic military high school, that I wore a uniform and um, was taking Latin and religion courses, all of that was something that was having to play itself out. And I became very rebellious in so many ways. I flunked religion one year, and then that summer I, I wrote a comparative religions paper. So there was that search or quest for God in my life. I remember at some point even voicing that I was an agnostic, and I think I had enough sense to say I'm not an atheist, but I was close. But that was all part of the journey for me. Things came to a head politically when I was in my senior year, and I'm, I think I'm 16, almost 17, I'm promoted to the color guard. And I, I included one of my pictures where you see the stripes on my arm. And I was taken out the first afternoon to be shown how to fold the flag after retiring the flag in the afternoon. And the spirit spoke to me, and that's, that's how I would describe it. The spirit spoke to me as I'm watching the flag come down the pole, and it says, don't touch it. And so when they tried to get me to practice, you know, to, to, to fold the flag, I said, I'm not I'm not touching it. They said, why? I said, because it doesn't stand for anything that I do. And this is all in the context of the Vietnam War and the, the protests and civil rights. All these things are coming to a head. So it was a very turbulent era for everybody in America and especially for this now 16 year old boy. <laughs> And you know, and I and I wonder with all of the the turbulence, the tension within your family, the tension within you, I wonder if you could share a little bit more about this moment because it it sounds like that was what you heard. You said you you heard this spirit speaking to you to not touch the flag. That spirit had to cut through, right? All of the chaos, the turbulence the confusion, the rebellion, right, within you so that you could hear it. So I wonder if you could just describe, because it sounds like such a transformative moment and a guiding, sort of a guiding hand that sets you on a path. So I wonder if you could describe that moment a little bit more and also the folks around you who are maybe looking on in disbelief <laughs> that you would sort of reject this, what I'm assuming was an honor, right, for you to fold this flag and you're rejecting it. So if you could like slow that moment down and tell us a little bit more. Sure. My father, I would hear him talking at times about Mr. Charlie. <laughs> and and we all knew that was code in those days for the white man. And so his experiences at National Security Agency, Air Force, and particular experience that I recall him him explaining to me that when my mother joined him for lunch one day at a place that he often went, and they refused to serve him, and actually he was trying to figure out why, and they finally came out and said, "I'm sorry, but we don't serve Negroes." And it was refer reference to my mom because she was much darker than my father, and he was he could pass, 
Well, that story kind of resonated with me. And I guess I, I had that in my mind. And again, all these other awakenings and, and exposure. And so seeing the flag come down that pole, all of those sentiments and feelings kind of overwhelmed me. And I felt a freedom in my senior year, going into my senior year that I hadn't experienced before. I really was free. I spent my senior year mentally and spiritually free. And so that was another turning point for me. And I'm, I'm looking at the dynamics of this awakening blackness, this consciousness, and, and not wanting to conform. And so that was that was just, it just rang in my soul. And that was something that made sense for me. And my father, he never challenged me about it. He never expressed any anger. And I can say that at different points in my life, he never did that. He knew and he just kind of accepted that I was, I guess, different. <laughs> and it wasn't until many years later, many years later, that he actually confided with me that he said, he, literally, he's, he's, his words were, you made the courageous decision. And he was referring to me leaving America and going to live in Israel, which was quite vindicative for me. Oh, um, I'm certain it was. So there's so much that you so like poetically and beautifully captured in what it meant for you to see that flag. And, and it sounds like it really, you said it was an awakening, something that rang in your soul, this consciousness, this emerging consciousness. And so I wonder if you could also share from from that moment, right, the, the you in 1974 who's feeling free, right, from the expectations, but also it sounds like from having to hide, right, your own awakening that you are now fully able to explore it further. Tell us how you get to Israel. It was a bit strange because with that type of a consciousness, it wouldn't logically follow that I would have kept a Bible close at hand, even after a year of college away from home and back in Washington, D.C. and moving out into my own apartment, leaving the house and attending American University and trying to pursue again that new direction for Black power, which was economic power and political power. I managed to get an internship on Capitol Hill through one of my professors. I was a student at American University at the time. And ideally, I thought, well, I could be a lawyer, I could be a politician, and that would be how I could help my people. You know, that was the, that was my soul reaching out to say, you know, this is what I want to do with my life. And quickly, it's interesting because my, my internship placed me in the annex of a congressman but the annex was located directly next door to one who had become pretty much an idol for me. And that was Congressman Ron Dellums of California. He was handsome. He was tall. He was a good dresser, you know, and he was articulate. And so that image was something that, that appealed to me. But I quickly realized from sharing the coffee room in between the interjoining offices that I was like, they're not doing anything up here. This is a facade. This is not really impacting on what I see needs to happen in terms of actually, again, helping the plight and condition of Africans in America. And so that kind of disillusioned me. I kept the job for a year or so. And so parallel with that season, when I was frustrated, I would always kind of come back home to the apartment and I would just sit in front of the Bible a moment with a problem or with a question 
And it was what I call bibliomancy. (laughs) And I would literally just open the book, flip to a page randomly and just kind of look. And my eyes would fall upon something that actually made sense and helped me at that particular moment. And so I continued to do that. So that practice, that biblical relationship was always there during that particular transition in, in my life. And so that led me, that particular search led me to being the era when I went to, uh, to visit a friend in Detroit. And my friend's brother-in-law asked me to go with him to a uh, a service. And I went and it was on was on Saturday. It was a, a Shabbat service. It was a uh, Hebrew Israelite service, and so I heard the brother speaking that day, and it and it made sense that basically that the African in America is not just any African. He's from Northeast Africa, specifically from Israel, and that he had migrated through Africa and the West Coast and across the waters into America and. It answered a lot of questions for me, and it resonated so strongly that I was like, man, I'm an Israelite. So I went back to D.C. and I was 75. I went back to D.C. and bounced around for another couple years. I didn't have any teachers. I didn't have anyone to share that with. And one day I, I walk into a Muslim health food store that I frequented often because I, I like bean pies, too. The whole wheat brown bread that they were were, were selling there. I came across an interview in a book called Black Books Bulletin. It was Haki Madabuti's magazine back then. This was 77. In the middle of the uh, magazine was the interview with one of the leaders from here in Israel. And I find out that a group of African-Americans had actually left America in 1967, headed to Israel. And it blew me away because I'm thinking that I'm one of the first to to learn this connection. And here I am 10 years late in my view. And after a couple of days, I go back to the health food store and there's a flyer that says, in fact, the, it wasn't the flyers were all gone, but the brothers saved it for me because they knew the, the path I was on. And they said, you'd be interested in this. And they shared it with me. And there was a lecture taking place the following day at, at Howard University's auditorium. And needless to say, I was there. I watched an old black and white film strip. It made sense to me. It all came home. I was sitting on the edge of my seat. By the time they turned the lights on and began a lecture and the question and answer session, I knew that that was my calling and I haven't turned aside since. So the following year, I came here to visit. Two years later, I was here to stay. (laughs) Ah, so if you'll allow me for a second, Sar. You know that I'm a psychologist. <laughs> so, so, so that's to just to, to prep you. Yes, I'm just going to prep you for my next question. So I, I wonder if you'll indulge me a little bit <laughs> and share a, a bit more about how all of this is feeling to you, whether you know we call it serendipitous or kind of divine providence, but all of these signs that you're receiving from the flag coming down to walking into, you know, a health food store and seeing this bulletin. Can you describe kind of what's happening emotionally for you as you take in these signs of your path? That, Kamila, is actually the word that I use then and now that indeed they were signs. And I tell people all the time that signs are only for those who can read them. 
people can see the same thing and they won't interpret the same message. But for me, it was crystal clear that this was the culmination. This was these these signs were speaking to me directly. It was a very personal journey. It was a very personal hands-on kind of guidance that I was receiving. And I was conscious of that. And I just simply said, whatever it is I'm doing, I'm going to keep doing it because each chapter is clearly taking me on this journey to where I really want to be. And so identity and spirituality was wrapped up in one. I'll say this about, you speak about my intellectual pursuits and interests and so forth, and that is me. But to say that everyone who ended up in our community, and we, we total maybe 3,000 here in Israel today, but for the foundational people, everyone, everyone's path and everyone's response or, or, or promptings are different. Everyone's got a different story in terms of what brought them here. But for me, it was very intellectual. It had to make sense. It was history. It was the linguistic connections with the Hebrew. It was Nat Turner you know, and his rebellion trying to get to Jerusalem, a town in Virginia, and the town's name being changed after that rebellion. It was all wrapped up in the Hebrewisms that you find in various African ethnic groups. And so that was my, my journey in awakening. And, and the beauty of it is for me is that my questions in my curiosity, in my search, have never ceased because learning is, is eternal. But I knew from that day forward that this would be the environment, this would be the context in which I would seek and get my other questions answered. And so I knew that Israel was home for me. I knew it was my ancestral home. And all that I've done since in terms of research, traveling in and out of Ghana and West Coast, Benin, Togo, down into South Africa and Zimbabwe to look at the Lemba connections and the Ebos in Nigeria, all of that research does nothing but reaffirm the rightness of the choice that I made or the rightness of the choice that was made for me and my correct response to that stimulus. And I think that's so beautiful and seeing your quest as one that's ever evolving, <laughs> one that, you know, you will continue so many decades later. So I wonder what words of wisdom would you share with your 14-year-old self, right, almost 51 years later? Is that right? I would say, don't be so hard on your grandmother. <laughs> and I say that because there's a thread in that that I've saved for the latter part of this story. I don't know how much more time we've got, but my grandmother, when I told her that I was going to leave America and come to Israel, I was standing on the porch of the, of the family house and she looked at me with a little tear in her eye, came over to hug me, never said a word. And that was it. And within a few weeks I was gone, I was in Israel. I was gone for 11 years before I made it back to the U.S. And I, made, I, I came back to the U.S. because of some political problems here with status. I was persona non grata. I was actually deported from Israel because that's the history of our community here. Our first 25 years in Israel was very, very difficult politically. And so I came back after 11 years and I was blessed that she was still alive. And I said, Grandmom, I said, um... When I told you that I was leaving to go to Israel that day, the sense I had was that 
you knew I was going to do this one day and that you, you know, you were really kind of pleased with that decision. She looked at me again with the same look in her eyes, the same tear in her in her eyes, came over and hugged me the same way and gave me the same silent treatment. And it wasn't until some years later when I was reading my grandmom's obituary that I found out that she was Jewish. No way. (laughs) You're kidding. No, it was really, I don't even have a word for it because if you know the history or the, or the history of our community, and again, the troubles that we went through, with status and are still actually going through to some degree here, the whole question of who is a Jew, it has problems that run along racial lines. And so by being able to have a Jewish grandmother actually qualifies me where I would not have had to go through all of what we've gone through. And so it's just not that I certainly wouldn't have wanted to have the shortcut provided for me and all the rest of my brothers and sisters here. We're not entitled to that. That's not what I'm saying. But just the fact that this was part of my lineage and my legacy, to see it again come to that kind of an intersection, needless to say that that is a very, very special part of this story, because I do wish that I could have not been so race conscious to the point of of uh, being ill-mannered towards my own flesh and blood. And so that's certainly one of the things I would tell him. (laughs) Oh, wow. How beautiful. And what strikes me is that in some way you are struggling to find a path home, right? That this is an identity that lived within you and she's observing her grandson, right? Struggled to find his way back. And I imagine that was part of her silence that she was so overcome with perhaps pride and joy and really being able to appreciate how your journey is leading back to a place that you had no idea you already belonged to. So I'm so thankful for you in sharing that because we've we've heard other stories of people kind of finding their way home and it speaks to how compelling the stories are that reside within us that we aren't aware of until we begin to speak. And so my last question for you is, you know, poet Lucille Clifton says, say it clear and it will be beautiful. And so I I wonder for you, what is it that you want to make clear about who you are and what you believe and the path that, you know, your journey has taken so that it is beautiful for those who are listening and really appreciating the richness of what you have offered? Okay. Oh, I I appreciate this time on your couch, Kamila. (laughs) It's good. That experience again with with my grandmom and and our experience here in Israel has brought us face to face with, again, that, that R word, the two R words, race and religion, which are responsible for probably more devastation and violence and ill feelings on the planet than any other I can't say realities because race is not a biological reality. It's a social construct. And so it was a necessary path, I think, for me, for us to go through, to sensitize us, to get to a point where Israel's calling prophetically is to be a light unto the nations. 
and our fair-skinned brethren here who who sit in the halls of the Knesset and the and other halls of power here, their interpretation of that is that of technology and startups. You know, Israel's the startup nation and finance and things of that nature, military prowess, you know, security. But for me and for us, that light has to take the form of of an intelligence, of a morality, of a spiritual, practical lifestyle that the rest of the nations would gravitate to or adopt at such a time like today. Because the crisis of global weirding and and warming and what have you, the crisis of quote-unquote democracy, the crisis of violence in the streets and and the, the various implosions of what people, the order, the political order, the economic order, you know, these things are right on the horizon. And for those, again, who have eyes to see those signs that we're, we're watching. And so it was all part of a journey for me and for us to be here to lay the foundation for a different mindset, a different lifestyle, a different living Spirituality is not something that you compartmentalize and you you give whether that one hour on one day or whether it was several hours on that one day. But it's a 24-7 relationship with not just that spiritual force and power, but your people with other people, the human family, with the creation itself, with the animals, with the birds. And so all of those things matter. And that's what I've come to understand and to learn. And the practicality of a life that's that's lived as such is actually the answer to the problems that confront humanity today. So I'm glad to be a part of this awakening, this global awakening. We see Israel as kind of like the spiritual center. I am glad and grateful and humbled by your generosity in in sharing so many intimate and transformative moments of your life. I hope that others can hear this and also make the courageous decisions that are presented to them in their own lives. And I look forward to reading the encyclopedic journey of Sar Amadiel (laughs) forthcoming (laughs) soon so that we can hear more of these really inspiring and you know breathtaking stories of being guided by that which is greater than you and the sensitivity and also the the wisdom of the lessons that are learned when we listen to ourselves when we make clear and say it clear those things that are really important to our own formation and development and i'm just extremely humbled and you know i'm i'm smiling by how much what you share resonates with me and certainly i'm sure with others um, so thank you so much for your time and your generosity you're talking to me from over 4000 miles away and it is clear and it is beautiful so thank you i thank you so much dear sister As we come to our very last episode of this season two of Stories from the Black Spiritual Diaspora, really what strikes me and resonates with me so beautifully is the sharing of stories, of narratives about other worlds, 
about quests for identity, about turning points in the lives of the individuals that have been so generous of of spirit to share what has been important to them, those pivotal moments, those turning points of life, of living, of being, and of becoming. And so with these stories as a starting point, I would encourage all of our listeners to begin to think about the stories that must be captured, the stories that must be honored in order to break the silence of anti-Black racism, to break the stranglehold of Christian hegemony, and to allow in the light of the stories from the Black spiritual diaspora that encourage us, that inspire us, and that allows us to pursue our own courageous decisions and spiritual journeys that will also have a profound effect in the world of lighting a path for others who are also seeking. Just profound gratitude for all of our guests this season. Of course, our Amariel Ben Yehuda calling in from Demona Israel to Bishop Mioke, Kalia Abiade, to Imam Abdumalik Merchant, and Naja Young. Thank you for your generosity, for your laughter, for your warmth, for your spirit. I will appreciate it for all of my days. And thank you also to Chicago Theological Seminary and the Interreligious Institute, to Bayan Islamic Graduate School, and of course, to the Muslim Wellness Foundation for bringing these stories to life. 